can't tell if the chemistry is good by looking at it. It wasn't clear yesterday. For the last time, the saltwater pool is a chlorine pool. This is the Talking Pools podcast with pool pros from every region in the country. If it happens in a pool, you'll hear about it here. Everything from tips and hacks to the latest tricks and trends, breaking news. We lay it on the line. We tell it like it is because we think you deserve to know. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Testing Thursdays with Wayne Ivasich. How are you all out there in the pool and spa world? I'm doing pretty good. I hope you are, too. It's uh, gearing up for the upcoming season, and I know that a lot of you are busy out there trying to uh, get together new clients and, and make new new clients happy. Uh, today, what we're going to be talking about is a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And by that, I mean, we're going to be talking about three different tests that you probably don't do that often and maybe should even be doing a little more often than what you think. But we'll go over that. We're going to be talking about cyanuric acid testing. We're going to be talking about metals testing. And then finally, we're going to be talking about salt testing for you lucky people who work with chlorine generators. And remember, if you have a salt pool, you don't use chlorine. <laughs> you want to just throttle some people. Anyhow, uh, let's start off with cyanuric acid. Um, okay, the thing about cyanuric acid, there's a lot of things about cyanuric acid, obviously, of late. But when you're talking testing, the only real way to test for cyanuric acid accurately and that, again, is a dubious um, uh, title for cyanuric acid testing, is something we call turbidimetric testing. In other words, turbidity, cloudiness. And in, in most cyanuric acid tests that are not electronic or digital-based, you're, what you're going to do is take a sample of water of a certain amount, whatever the instructions tell you. Remember, follow those instructions. Finger wag, follow those instructions. Um, and then you're going to add to that sample an, a, re, a reagent. Um, Taylor calls it cyanuric acid reagent. Other people might call it something else. But remember um, that cyanuric acid uh, reagent is comprised of something called melamine. And what happens is when you add that reagent to a sample of water, uh, you're adding the melamine product to that sample of water, and then you're agitating it for 30 seconds. And in fact, it's the only, the only test. Again, the only test, underline, bold, italicized, big font, whatever you want to call it. The only test that you would commonly do for a pool and spa water that would tells you to shake the vial or to agitate it. Those of you, bad, bad surface people who are shaking the sample tubes for chlorine testing or pH testing. No, that's wrong. The instructions, read them. It does not say agitate. It does not say shake at all. So don't do it. Don't think you're doing it right. You're probably not. The only test is cyanuric acid. So you agitate that mixture for about 30 seconds-ish, um, sometimes a little bit longer. 
And then for the most part, what you're going to do is that there's going to be a separate test cell or maybe part of the comparator block or, or whatever, but there's a little black dot at the bottom of the test cell on the inside. So what you're going to do is squirt that mixed and agitated solution into the test cell um, over the black dot until the black dot just disappears. Let me repeat that because that's kind of important. Add until the black dot just disappears. Then stop adding it. And then lift up the test vial. And on the side should be numbers that usually go from 0 to 90 or 0 to 100. And then you'll see where the water level is and read across from there the number where the water level is. And that's your cyanuric acid level. Yes, it's a horrible test. It is the least accurate of any of them, but it is also the least co uh, the most cost-effective test you can do for cyanuric acid. Now, of course, if you're doing it electronically or digitally, it's, it might be a little bit of a, of a different process, but essentially it's the same thing. It's a turbinometric test. Let me step backwards and emphasize the, add the added mixture until the black dot just disappears. And... Boys and girls, what does the word disappear mean? You can't see it. Disappears, not visible. Okay. And it's not, oh, I can still see the black dot at the bottom of the test. So, oh, it's still shaded out. So that must be it. No, you add it until you can't see it anymore. I don't know how more blatantly obvious I can make that statement. And the instructions clearly state that. Again, follow the instructions for they are there for a reason. Now, Okay, you've done your test and you've gotten your answer. Now what? Well, here's where the comes in. Um, for a, when I first started with in the industry back in the early 90s, the prevailing thought for cyanuric acid levels was that you want your cyanuric acid level uh, proportionate to how strong the sun hits you. So therefore, a, um, an ideal cyanuric acid range would be different in mid-Atlantic areas, where I'm from, as opposed to, say, Key West, <laughs> Florida, you know, Central America, Mexico, that kind of thing, a little more intense rays of the sun. And so generally speaking, for, for my area of the world, 30 to 50 parts per million was considered ideal. As you go further south, uh, people in Florida would keep 90, 100, 150 parts per million because, uh, duh, the sun is stronger. If you go up north, people, you know, in, in the upper Midwest, New England, you know, uh, north northwest area, you know, 10 to 30. Well, back, that was the, the way it was, the way it was uh, for a long time until 2006. And 2006 came along. And at the World Aquatic Health Conference in 2006, it took place in Atlanta. Why does, why does Wayne know this? Wayne was there um, and attended this particular uh, presentation from the CDC, who had done a five-year study on cyanuric acid and its relationship to sunlight. And essentially what the CDC did was disprove what had been commonly held for a long time, even prior to me coming on board in, in the industry. And basically this said um, that 30 to 50 is, an, is the ideal range and anything above 50 
is considered a waste of product. It doesn't do anything extra. It just kind of sits there. I call it flatlining straight across. And, and back then, and as it approaches triple digits, as cyanuric acid approaches 100 parts per million or higher, it may, doesn't necessarily happen, but it may contribute to something called chlorine lock. Now, I know that there are many of you out there going, oh, God, he's going to talk about chlorine lock. It doesn't exist, blah, 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 blah. Well, gang, um, I'm a firm believer of it's, you know, it, if it's not true, unless I see it happening. And, and I've seen it happen. So all I can say is that, yes, I've seen chlorine lock happen. But anyhow, I digress. So and that's how it's been for a long, 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 long time until the World Aquatic Health Conference in uh, 2019 or 2018. I, I actually forget which year it was. But there was a, a rather large uh, contingent groups, whatever you want to call it, um, of people involved in the chemical and treatment end of things um, that kind of challenged the 30 to 50 part per million range. Uh, some people said that, well, you need to maintain um, um, 7% of whatever your cyanuric acid reading is as chlorine, in other words, for the chlorine to work. So if you had a, a cyanuric acid reading of 100 parts per million, uh, you would need to maintain seven parts per million of chlorine in order to provide adequate sanitation and oxidation. And a lot of people are going, oh, wait a minute, seven parts per million reading, that's kind of high. I'm not sure if that's good. Then there was others in the group that believed that it was, uh, you know, five parts per million, uh, up to a hundred parts per million of cyanuric acid, five parts per million of chlorine. This is all still out being discussed and bantered about. I mean, we, we people, those of us in the industry who are involved with chemical testing and, and, you know, determining ideal ranges and, and things like that, we are a very slow bunch of sloths. Uh, to admit to anything as far as change is concerned. So believe it or not, it is still being discussed. And in the meantime, the 30 to 50 part per million ideal range is still out there. So what do I tell people that, that I talk to when they say, okay, well, what's the ideal range of cyanuric acid? My blanket answer is going to be 30 to 50 parts per million. I mean, that that's the easy way. I mean, and, until such time as, you know, definitively, yes, no, it is this, no, it is not, whatever, 30 to 50, let's just stick with that, okay? Now, the other thing about cyanuric acid testing is that you don't have to do it every week, every day. Um, once a month, once every four to six weeks is probably good enough because cyanuric acid doesn't go away unless you physically remove it from the water. So the only way to lower cyanuric acid um, effectively and correctly is to drain the water partially, and then refill it with water that has no cyanuric acid in it. Duh. Um, that's the easiest way. It might be a little pricey, but hey, you know, in the long run, that's the only way to get rid of it. Um, the problem with that is that there are some companies out there that that promote products that say, oh, this will lower cyanuric acid 50 parts per million in a 10,000-gallon pool, blah, 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 blah. It's made of sugar. It's, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, they've kind of been proven not to be right. Um, some people called it snake oil. I'm not being that mean. But basically, 
uh, what these products do is that they don't get rid of the cyanuric acid. They just hide it from testing. Now, what good is that? Okay. So, again, the only realistic way is to, is to lower it. Now, how does cyanuric acid get in water? <laughs> you um, or your customers. You, 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 th there's a couple of different ways. If you're using an unstabilized form of chlorine, which means all of the hypochlorite products are chlorine gas, which you're probably not using anyhow, and it's an outdoor pool, you physically have to add cyanuric acid um, separately to the water. Okay. Now, the, the chlorine products that have uh, cyanuric acid as part of their physical makeup, these are called stabilized chlorines. These are your dichlor and your trichlor products. They already have cyanuric acid as part of their physical makeup. Generally speaking, uh, a pound of uh, dichlor, for example, which is roughly two three-ounce taps, will deliver six to seven parts per million of cyanuric acid per 10,000 gallons of water. For those of you lucky people who are filling up um, uh, systems where you're sloughing uh, water over tabs put into a column and then it goes back into the pool, that's a lot of tabs. Now, for those of you who are using trichlor, for those of you who can afford trichlor nowadays, he said clandestinely, it's a flat seven parts per million per 10,000 gallons of water per pound used. Okay. So what does that mean to everybody? Well, if you're using cyanuric, if you're using a stabilized form of chlorine to shock your bowl, first of all, bad, uh, because you're adding inordinately large amounts of cyanuric acid to your water uh, that you didn't think was going to be there. So it builds up and it builds up and it builds up to the point where cyanuric acid can cause a problem. What kind of problems, Mr. Wayne? Well, let what, Mr. Wayne answer that. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to melt the skin off of your body. It's not going to kill you. What it will do, if it's very, very high and the water temperature is warm, you're going to get some cloudy water issues. One, or the potential for cloudy water issues. Two, chlorine becomes less effective. Unless, unless instead of working with the chlorine, cyanuric acid, chlorine working together, it kind of, the, the cyanuric acid kind of takes it over and, and, and kind of prevents chlorine from getting out there to do the job it's supposed to do. This is the chlorine lock thing um, that some people refer to. Um, that can happen too. Um, so you want to keep your levels as low as you possibly can. Um, there are no interferences in cyanuric acid testing. It, it, it is what it is because of, of how it is. So you can't screw it up, basically, unless you don't follow the instructions. That's kind of important. Have I said that enough? Probably not. Okay. So cyanuric acid. Um, if you have a lot, if you have any leaks in the water, uh, you backwash too much, you a lot of splash out, a, a big weather event comes through and, and dilutes the water, then you want to retest it afterwards to make sure of, of where you are and and uh, treat it appropriately. But you know, cyanuric acid is a test that that does need to be done. Um, again, not not often, once a month, once every four to six weeks is usually good enough unless those kind of events that I just mentioned happen. Then you want to test it a little bit more frequently.
So let's talk to the next little little bit of this. Metals. Metals in the water. So many calls over the years, so many questions, so many emails about metals in the water. The two most common metals that you might find in recreational water are copper and iron. Why is that, Mr. Wayne? Well, um, I do talk to myself in the third person every now and then, don't I? Hmm. Yeah, that's a problem. The most common elements found in groundwater are copper and iron. So, for example, if, if your source water is from a well, the odds are really, really good that you probably have copper and or iron in the water. If your source water is from a municipal system, you might want to check it, okay, because some municipal systems have small amounts of metal in the water. Perfect example. At my home, I'm on Baltimore City water. And Baltimore City water has a very, very, very small amount of copper in the water, like 0.00 something. It goes out to three decimal places. Well, why is it there? It's because our infrastructure is so old. A lot of the piping, not necessarily under the ground, because that's, that's iron, um, are, are old uh, and will uh, leach out copper and, and iron ions into the flow of water into the municipal water. You don't taste it, but it's there. So it, I have heard of stories, at least here in, in the Baltimore area, where they've used Baltimore city water um, as, as fill water. And because of the level of copper in the water, the water changes color. Um, that doesn't happen often with that low levels, but it, it can under certain circumstances that we'll talk about in a moment. Generally speaking, anything greater than 0.3 parts per million copper and 0.2 parts per million iron can cause discoloration of the water and or staining. Okay, it can do both or one or the other. Now, the, when this happens, there's usually something else that causes this reaction to occur. And that something else is a high pH. The higher the pH of the water, the greater the propensity for these metals to come out of solution. In other words, they, they come out, they're, they're visible now, and they cause the staining and the discoloration. Well, how high how how high is pH? That, okay, Wayne, talk English. What's the pH need to be in order for that to happen? Let me drink my coffee. Usually it happens when you see pH levels 7.7 and higher. Now, we know the ideal range for pH. It's 7.4 to 7.6, and acceptable ranges are 7.2 to 7.8, which kind of overlaps the greater than 7.7 number for possible for possibly metals to come out of solution. So you got to be very, very careful. So if your incoming water has a high pH or you like a high pH, whatever, and you think you might have metals in the water, the likelihood of, of these metals, this, this coloring, is great. What can also cause this is the overuse of copper-based algicides. Uh, in other words, the, the, the wrong thinking, more is better, I'll add a quart instead of a pint. You know, Well, you've added more copper ion to the water that doesn't need there. And if you have a higher pH, boom, hello, you have a pretty discolored pool. And what are the colors? Well, with copper, you've got a blue, blue, green, green, turquoise, teal, those kind of shades kind of appear. With iron, it looks like rust. 
iron oxide. Rust, brown, uh, water could be clear, water could be cloudy in, in either case, but those kind of uh, discolorations. Um, so anytime you see water that's discolored, now remember, and I love this, my water's always blue, so it's good, right? Now, water's clear. <laughs> Let me get that pretty straight in your head. Water's clear. It has no color to it, but something's wrong. What it's what it's doing is the water's taking on the color of the of the surface of the of the floor and the bottom of the of the pool, whether it's a liner or painted or, or whatever. Oh, God, so many God, so many calls like that. Anyhow, um, so true true discolored water is you you pull out a sample of water and you're looking at it and yeah that water is kind of colored kind of funny. It's probably due to the copper or iron, more so if your source water is from a well. Okay. Now, some people will use on their well water source water uh, RO systems, that's reverse osmosis, um, or some other kind of system that will help remove some of these ions, which is great. It's costly, but it's great. Uh, and that helps. As far as treatment chemicals are concerned, they for metals, it falls into two different words, chelating and sequestration. Now, chelating is C-H-E-L-A-T-I-N-D. It looks like it should be pronounced chelating, but it's really chelating. And what chelating does, uh, well, well, I'll tell you what. Let me talk about the other one first because it kind of is in that order. The first one is sequestration or sequestering reagents, sequestrants. Now, if, if, we're, if we unfortunately have to go to, to court and you're picked for jury, first of all, sorry, uh, and unfortunately the judge sequesters you, what does that mean? Well, that means he hides you from everybody else so that you can maintain your your, your neutrality. Well, kind of the same thing happens with metals. Um, a sequestering product, when you add it to the water, will hide the metal ions. They're still there. You just don't see it. Okay, but they're still there and potentially causing problems. Here's where that chelating product comes in. Chelation actually turns those little metal ions into magnets and makes those ions much bigger so that they're travelable by the filter. Metal ions are so small, they will even go through a DE filter, okay, and just pass right through. But by adding a chelating product, you make them bigger and that filter traps them. Most metal treatment products that are out there, things like metal out, metal be gone, um, no more, no more metals. I know there's a whole bunch of words like that. Look at the look at the container, and make sure it says that this product sequesters and chelates. If it doesn't do both, don't buy it, okay? Because you're just kind of shooting yourself in the foot. You, you, it's not worth the money that you spent because it's only doing part of the process to get rid of it. Okay, so you want one that sequesters and you want one that chelates at the same time. Most do, but but check the containers. This thing again, it's going to depend on the manufacturer of the product. And most of the time it's like a quart for 10,000 gallons, but, but just double, but just double check. Um, metals testing is not something you need to do all the time. Uh, usually it's one of those when it happens kind of deal, unfortunately. You know, you don't need a plumber until the pipes break, <laughs> that kind of situation. And the last thing we're gonna talk about today is salt testing. Um, Back when I first started in the industry in the early 90s, salt systems, scoring generators, saltwater generators, what do you want to call them, were just in their infancy. And very few people knew about them, let alone had them. 
Uh, and if they did, they were very, very expensive. And essentially what's happening with these systems, let me explain it to you in, in, in easy terms. You've got water, you've got salt. H2O, NaCl, water, salt. You mix the two, okay? Fine, you got salty water. Then that salty water passes through some kind of electrolysis, electrolysis, however you want to pronounce it, system, and zaps it. And all those NAs and CLs and Hs and Os kind of separate and reform. Okay? And one of the things they form is HOCl. And boys and girls, what's HOCl? Hypochlorous acid. Chlorine. Free chlorine. So it produces free chlorine. Okay? Um, it is a very now economical way to produce chlorine on site. Um, as the technology became more efficient um, and popular, it became more popular with homeowners. Uh, wasn't really into the commercial level because you needed a lot of cells and, and um, things like that. But nowadays, you're still you're seeing on 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 big commercial applications too. Uh, I like these systems. Uh, I like these systems because you're not adding chlorine. You're creating chlorine um, from salt. Salt doesn't blow up, doesn't catch fire. It's what we put on French fries. Uh, uh, you store it. It stores fine. It doesn't have the possibility of, you know, big bombs and rockets and things like that. Um, but it's pretty innocuous. A lot of cruise ships now are converting over to using these type of systems, uh, as opposed to storing uh, chemicals, chlorine or bromine, whatever they used um, uh, on, on board ship. Um, it just could be a problem waiting to happen. I have a very good friend in the industry, a colleague, uh, Connie Sue Centrella, who teaches the certified pool operator course, uh, uh, maritime um, um, version, I guess you can call it, uh, to many cruise lines across the world. And uh, she's the one who told me about this, this slow changeover, which I think is a really, really good idea. Anyhow, um, so with salt testing, you're, you're adding salt to water. You're shooting some electricity through it. Boom, 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 boom. It produces hypochlorous acid, which is fed back into the pool. Yay! Or spa. Yay! Okay. Now, how do you test for salt? Well, a lot of people say, well, why should I test for salt if I know it's producing chlorine? Well, if you don't have the right amount of salt based for the chlorine generator you're using, again, you shot yourself in the foot. Okay. Many, many foot shots here. Okay. It, now, depending upon the generator, you can have as low as 2,000 parts per million, and the highest one I've ever seen was 6,000. But most of the time, for residential pools and spas, it's about 3,000 parts per million. So let's use that number. So you got a system that that says, okay, you need to maintain 3,000 parts per million of salt in the water all the time in order to produce X amount of chlorine, okay? Well, that's fine. This is why you test for salt, because if you have too much or too little, it, it's completely inefficient. Okay, you're, you're making the system work too hard and it will break down and then it will cost you money to replace it, blah, 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 blah. So maintaining the correct salt level is important. Um, and you do that by, by testing. You can test it with test strips. You can test it with uh, a drop test. Um, more efficiently and more accurately, probably the drop test is better uh, because what you're doing is taking a sample of water 
and you're running a drop of something that's called chromate indicator. And it turns the sample almost like this shade of yellow on my shirt. It'll maybe sometimes it'll come out milky, but, but a lot of times it, it, it's this color. And then you're adding another reagent drop by drop until it goes from yellow to a brick red kind of color. And I'm talking brick red. And the changeover from yellow to brick red is boom, in your face. It's not a slow, gradual change over like some of the drop tests are. And in most cases, the drop equivalence, in other words, each drop is equal to a certain amount of salt, and that's about 200 parts per million. So if it took um, uh, 10 drops to go from yellow to brick red, 10 times 200 is 2,000, you've got 2,000 parts per million. Pretty simple. Another good thing about the saltwater testing is that there's really nothing that can interfere with it. The high chlorine doesn't do anything with it, high bromine, weirdness in pH, it really doesn't have any kind of interferences associated with it. Um, it. You just have to be really, really careful of the reagents, particularly when you're adding the drops of, because that's silver nitrate. That's why it's in a brown bottle. I remember I told you earlier that any reagent in a brown bottle is a natural oxidizer, which means if you get it on your fingers, your fingers are going to get little brown dots all over them that don't go away real, real quick. Silver nitrate is also called invisible ink. Hello. So a cute little thing. Um, when I used to run the um, bring your kids to work day back in the day when my when my kids were young enough to do that a long time ago, we used to let them um, draw and play with the silver nitrate with gloves on, of course, and they just thought it was really neat that the paper would darken where they put the drops and stuff. It was cute little things. Anyhow, and I digress. So now with with testing for salt for metals for cyanuric acid, for anything else that I've talked about over the past few weeks, what's the one thing that's most important? Temperature of the sample. You've got to have that temperature between 50 and 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, if it's too high, you're cooking the reagents. If it's too low, the reaction will occur too slowly. So between 50 and 90 is where you want to be. I think that's it for today, ladies and gentlemen, uh, boys and girls. I uh, hope you learned something today. Uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about things like, oh, phosphate testing, nitrate testing, other kinds of tests you can possibly do. Uh, we're going to talk about water balance. I'll probably rant a little bit like I haven't done so already. But I hope you got something out of this. If you have any questions or anything that pops into your mind as far as a topic, please feel free to send an email to talkingpools at gmail.com, and they'll be forwarded to me. And other than that, guys, gals, have a great, great week. Take care. Bye-bye. Just wanted to take a minute to say thank you for listening today. I'm hoping you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed putting it together for you. Listen, it's been a couple of wacky, crazy, screwed up years from pandemic to Poolmageddon. I just want you to know that we are all in this together. If there's anything that we can do for you, send me an email at talkingpools at gmail.com. Again, that's talkingpools at gmail.com. We're here. This is your podcast. We are the Pool People's Podcast of the Pool People for the Pool People by the Pool People's Podcast. This one is about you. So thank you for tuning in and listening. Do me a favor. Click subscribe before you go. That way you don't miss an episode. 